RPC Radio. Welcome to Unspoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. representatives of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. In this episode, we are focusing on the Inter-American Development Bank and we have with us Juan Ronderos, the Sanctions Officer, and Samia Fahum, the Principal Integrity Officer. And to round out our panel, we have Alex Haynes, a barrister at Outer Temple Chambers, who has a very internationally focused practice, including relevantly having acted in matters involving sanctioning bodies of the various development banks, including the Inter-American Development Bank. Welcome to all of you, and thank you for joining me today to explain more to our listeners. Thanks for having us. Both Juan and Samir are veterans in their roles, having held them for 10 and 8 years respectively. Juan came to his role via a stint in law enforcement in Colombia, private practice, and an academic career which focused on the issue of corruption. Juan, what drew you to your present position? Well, I'm currently the sanctions officer of the Inter-American Development Bank, and in that position I serve as first instance decider in cases that are brought to me by the Office of Institutional Integrity, which is where Samir works. So I am in charge of looking at the cases, sending the cases to the respondents to hear their response, and ultimately deciding on them and whether or not I have to impose a sanction, what kind of sanction that would be. And I am the first tier. There's a second tier, which is the appellate body called the Sanctions Committee, where respondents, if they're not happy with my decision, they can appeal their case for. And Samir, you have a background which is more focused on the investigative side and involves a number of significant appointments as an investigator, including for the Air Force. So what about those roles has made the Inter-American Development Bank such a good match for you and the skills that you've developed? You're correct. I started my investigative career with the U.S. Air Force as a special agent where I investigated a broad range of federal criminal investigations. did that for about seven years. And then I took the decision to work in the international arena. I went from the Air Force to the World Bank, where I was a senior investigator, primarily focused on investigations in the Middle East, largely because of my Arabic-speaking background. And then from there, I had an opportunity to take a management role at the IDB, where I currently head investigations. It's a broad collection of investigative practices from federal agencies to international arena that has, I suppose, made me a good fit for the IDB. Samir, we've heard from Juan about the role of the sanctions officer. How does the Office of Institutional Integrity operate? What are its functions and how does it interlink with the sanctions officer? 
I think we'll say OII for short. OII has two primary roles. The, the first is integrity prevention, which is essentially the service we provide to the IDB as an institution. That entails integrity due diligence, anti-money laundering, oversight, training, and consultations to support IDB group staff and the execution of the bank's operations. The second role, which is what I had, is that of investigations. Specifically, we investigate allegations of prohibited practices. Broadly, that includes fraud, corruption, collusion, and, and misappropriation in IDB-financed operations. There are some other prohibited practices as well. Our jurisdiction is quite unique. It applies to external parties, so contractors, consultants, vendors, consultants who are managing um, our programs or for ministries, government ministries. And we investigate involvement in any prohibited practices on operations that are financed by the IDB. Alex, from your perspective, you've been called on to represent some of those individuals or companies. How do you and your role interact with the officers described by both Juan and Samir? See, this is the third piece of the puzzle in a way, the respondent company or the respondent individual, that is the entity accused of misconduct. Most of my MDB experience has been acting on behalf of this respondent, this respondent entity. So I've represented respondents in litigation against MDB investigative offices, like Samir's office. I've also represented respondents in cases that have come before the sanctions officer, like Juan or his equivalents. I've also represented respondent companies before the sanctions committees. That's the final tier review within a sanctions system, often in oral proceedings in Washington, D.C., for example. And I've also acted on behalf of MDB officers themselves for specific MDBs. So I've seen both sides of the coin. Thank you, Alex. So now that we've got a clearer picture of where you each sit within the IDB, let's zoom back out and have a look at what it does. Samir, how would you describe what the IDB actually does? Yes, I think that's an important question. The IDB is a multilateral development institution, so it's important to point out it's not a commercial bank. It's an international institution, much like the World Bank or the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, EBRD, in London. Like the EBRD, the IDB is a regional development institution focused on lending to governments and private sector specifically for development-focused projects. Only in our case, we focus on the Latin American and Caribbean region. The IDB is represented by 48 member countries. Though membership is not limited to the region, we do have members from non-regional countries, including many in Western Europe and Asia, that are represented on our board. Within the LAC region, we are the largest contributor of development lending. For example, in 2019, the IDB approved over $11 billion dollars U.S. in lending to the region. Turning to you, Juan, how does the IDB achieve the goals that have been set out for it? The majority of the money that Samir was talking about goes into projects that are executed in a wide range of different topics like education, health, infrastructure, in all kinds of different procurements. So the majority of that money is spent in procurement, executed through government agencies, either through ministries or through agencies at the local or departmental level, depending on the country or state. Then the bank, being a treaty institution, in its Articles of Agreement, has a special clause that says that the agency, the institution, has the fiduciary duty to ensure that all the money that it has, and it's being used for this purpose of development and having these projects working, is actually used for the intended purpose. And we need to verify that that money is being used properly. And therefore, we have a number of mechanisms to ensure that projects go smoothly, go according to plan, and that the execution is correct. Since the late 1990s at the World Bank and later in all the other multilateral development banks, 
we have created systems to ensure that there's no fraud, corruption, collusion, theft, like Samir was explaining. And we created these systems so we can investigate companies that execute those contracts that are being done with money that we're lending and that we have a due process so those companies or persons can defend themselves within the system before we actually issue a decision of not doing business with that entity anymore. Thank you, Juan. Alex, from your perspective of representing those who are interacting with the IDB from the outside, what has been your experience of how the IDB goes about achieving those aims with its respondent companies? The IDB's fiduciary duty that Juan just talked about is often ignored on the outside of the institution. Companies, notwithstanding the procurement process they go through and the projects they bid and work on, usually know very little about the IDB sanction system. So the first a respondent hears from the IDB when things apparently go wrong is usually a communication from Samir's office. And that, more often than not, comes as a surprise to them. And the respondent may not necessarily be in trouble at that stage, but it is on any view a serious step in what could be a lengthy and expensive process. There is often confusion in relation to how to respond to the initial communication from OII. And I've seen all sorts of different reactions from needless aggression, which is usually born out of a fundamental misunderstanding of how the IDB and how MDBs more generally work, to nonchalance, no doubt based on the approach that if the IDB is not law enforcement, it can't be that serious. This is the we need not be worried approach, which I'm sure Samir and Juan have seen numerous times. And sometimes the complete opposite. So ill-advised, confused and non-thought-through admissions. And again, I suspect we'll all agree that none of those reactions are helpful to either party in the process. to investigations. You've each mentioned them. How might they come about? Samir, what are the processes that are followed by the IDB and how does the life cycle of an investigation work? The majority of investigators in my office, but also in other offices with other international organizations, have a background in the legal or law enforcement field. So we approach our investigations much like law enforcement or a law firm conducting an internal investigation. As Alex correctly said, we don't have law enforcement powers, so that obviously limits some of the things that we can do. But the principles of how we approach an investigation is similar in nature. Most of our investigations stem from complaints that we receive through our website or by email, but we do also conduct proactive investigations as a result of negative negative press that relates to national investigation or other methods. Once we've assessed a matter or a complaint, we launch a preliminary investigation to determine the extent that evidence exists to corroborate or, or disprove the existence of a preemptive practice. Typically, that starts with a desk review. So we're looking at project procurement related records, essentially looking for integrity red flags that might indicate the occurrence of a preemptive practice. We may also interview bank specialists who are experts on the program or other witnesses to help develop a case. Once we've determined that there is merit to the matter, we have a full investigation open. And that's where we actually set out on what we call missions. So we travel to countries, we go to project sites, conduct inspections, we go to companies and conduct forensic audits of books and records, and also go out to government executing agencies that are managing our program and review records there and speak with project managers. Eventually, we build a case against certain individuals or companies that may be implicated in the prohibited practice. 
And prior to concluding an investigation, much like any investigation, we would approach those that are implicated in any wrongdoing, typically in the form of a subject interview. And that's where we give the individual or a company an opportunity to explain events from their point of view. And we also confront them with certain evidence related to the prohibited practices where they're able to respond on record. After a case is substantiated, we move from investigator to prosecutor, and that's where we might be unique to some law enforcement agencies. Then it's our responsibility to then package up an investigation and what we call a statement of charges and evidence against the respondents, which we then submit to the sanctions officer for his consideration and determination on the case. That's very interesting. Samia, could I ask, in that process, how would you interact with local law enforcement or national authorities? That's a great question. The IDB is unique in the sense that we're an international institution. So we conduct our own independent administrative investigations and have, as we've discussed, an internal administrative adjudication system. So we don't rely on local laws or local authorities to process our investigations and sanction them. In addition, the institution and as staff, we have privileges and immunities that allow us to actually travel in-country to conduct our own investigations without a requirement to coordinate with law enforcement. Now, that said, while we have the ability to travel to country and conduct an investigation, and we do have audit rights over books and records, we do not have subpoena powers. We're not law enforcement. So there can be barriers to us being able to access evidence and ultimately uncover any potential prohibitive practices. So there are times actually where we do engage with law enforcement on matters that might be beneficial to both the IDB and the respective national authority, particularly given that there is overlap between what we call prohibitive practices and violations of local laws. And while we're not required to have cooperation agreements to have those engagements, we do actually sign cooperation agreements with a number of authorities to foster the exchange of information and collaboration and investigations. And I have to say, we're quite proud to say that my office has over 15 cooperation agreements signed with regional and international organizations like OLAF and UNDP and national authorities like the French, Spanish and Brazilian prosecutors' offices, to name a few. Juan, Samir has talked about passing a file over once the investigation is complete. Is that where your role starts or do you also have an investigation oversight or involvement? No, I don't have any investigative oversight over Samir's shop. His office is completely independent from mine, and I actually received the final product in terms of the statement of charges. Basically, as he described, he submits a statement of charges and accusations with all the evidence, and I am in charge of reviewing all of that and make a first assessment as to whether or not the evidence submitted is sufficient to support the charges that are being presented according to the standard of preponderance of the evidence. So it's the civil standard. Based on that, if there is sufficient evidence, then I issue a notice of administrative action against the respondent, explaining that we're initiating the process against that respondent to determine whether or not they have actually committed the prohibited practice. If the evidence is not sufficient to support one of the prohibited practices or to go against one of the respondents, I may request OII to take out one of the charges or to take out one of the respondents. I can also, at that stage of the process, if I don't believe that there is sufficient evidence and if I don't believe that any of the people charged should be charged, with consulting the chairperson of the sanctions committee, I can reject the case with no prejudice. So why I could in the future submit again a similar case. So once I issue a notice of administrative action informing the respondent that the case has started, 
then the respondent has 60 days to present the response with all the evidence and arguments that they feel would prove their innocence or would mitigate their circumstances. Then I will get a chance to review all the evidence and assess whether or not I need to ask more questions either from OII or the respondent to try to assess the situation and then I will make a decision. Turning to you now, Alex, what has been your involvement from the other side of this process? I often see that respondents ensure they are advised in terms of cooperation with national law enforcement or domestic regulators. But the MDB landscape means that there is a whole new dimension to a traditional approach. For example, there are situations where voluntary disclosure can have real benefits. And it's impossible to test the temperature of how this all works and what the best way forward is without understanding how the relevant bodies within the IDB operate. So some of the investigative processes may well be the same as domestic systems, as Samir alluded to, but ultimately this is an international and administrative framework with a civil standard, as Juan says, as opposed to, for example, a criminal standard. And to complicate matters, the IDB enjoys a number of privileges and immunities. So it's often forgotten as part of the strategy and defence mechanism for a respondent company because the focus is often on the domestic as opposed to this international organisation's level, if you like, where the MDB acts as a regulator. Thank you, Alex. The IDB has its own approach to the resolution of investigations, which, since the first public settlement in 2018, has included settlement as a powerful tool in the fight against corruption. With one settlement a year since 2018, the importance of this process can't be overstated. So, Samir, how would you describe this trend? You're correct. The ability for us to settle investigations is quite new. We were authorized to do it, I think, around 2017, and our first settlement came about in 2018. The IDB, we have a quite unique approach to settlements in that we're actually regulated or limited in when we can approach a company for settlement. And there's two essential requirements to that. The first, which is, I think, a quite common one for settlements, is that any company or individual would have to admit to or not contest findings of a prohibitive practice. That's quite standard. But the other entails a benefit to the institution, which is that a company or an individual needs to be able to provide the IDB with information about systemic integrity risks to the IDB's programs or other prohibitive practices that were not previously known to OII during the course of an investigation. That information is useful and really enables the IDB to then take lessons learned about wrongdoing in its operations and use it to modify or correct any integrity gaps that exist. So as I mentioned, these limit the possibility for companies and OII to settle, but it really ends up forcing companies to look deep into their own conduct or that of their employees to extract useful information for the IDB. And Juan, what are the differences between that settlement process and the sanctions process that you described earlier? It is very different because, as Samir was explaining before, our system differentiates from other systems in that there's an involvement of my office, but not an involvement as it is in a statement of charges and accusations. My involvement is at the initial stage when Samir's office is deciding whether or not to start engaging with a company to do a settlement. He needs to have from my office an authorization to go ahead in which we actually review the evidence provided by Samir at that point to show that if the case was going to go forward and if those allegations were going to be proven, then they would constitute a prohibited practice. 
So at that point, we're not assessing the evidence that in the future will be collected. We're not even reviewing a full-fledged investigated case. We're just looking at if the allegations that they have so far would be to be proven, then there would be a case. That's number one. And number two, if the company was to provide some useful for the institution to actually be able to continue with the settlement process, and if that information would be of X and Y nature, what would be the range for settlement? And therefore, if I see that those two things are there, then I will provide that range of settlement. I will go back to some years office and say, if you were to prove these allegations throughout a normal process, and if this company was to provide you this type of information that will help the institution, then the range within which you can negotiate would be this. And then with that, he goes and starts a negotiation process with the companies. Of course, during negotiation, additional information would come to light in relation to the type of assistance and help that the company can provide. And the range may be reviewed throughout the process. So I may hear again from Samir's office as to circumstances that may have shifted throughout the settlement process. And I may go back to them with a revised range. Thank you, Juan. So, Alex. In your experience, how is the prospect of settlement viewed by respondents? The recent development at the IDB and its rather unique approach to settlements is fascinating. And we're going to drill down into those in a moment. But as a starting point, the increased trend in settlements across many NDBs, generally speaking, is sometimes criticised, especially by anti-corruption NGOs or those with an ethics background, to the extent that the word settlement is sometimes seen as a dirty word. And I want to dispel that myth if I can, because of course settlements are confidential, and that often leads to frustration when one cannot understand why the respondent received a particular peer of debarment, for example. But when negotiated and agreed as part of a developed system that's put in place appropriate checks and balances that Juan's touched on already. The advantages of settlements, when appropriate, far outweigh the disadvantages. Cooperation, I think it's fair to say, is at the heart of any settlement. And the intelligence that the investigative or anti-corruption offices of MDBs like Samir's office acquire is invaluable, enabling them to go after further corrupt entities. They also encourage disclosure of misconduct. There is a certainty of results for all parties. And of course, the obvious one, saving of resources. And the IDB has taken the settlement framework even further by injecting these rather important safeguards. What is the process for settlement? The process also, again, for us is quite unique in that settlements can only take place prior to the submission of a statement of charges and evidence to the sanctions officer. So unlike some other institutions where a company may change their mind after a case has been submitted to the sanctions system and then pull the case out of the sanctions system and try to settle it, we actually don't allow that and we don't have that authorized within our guidelines. And so a company would need to make the conscious decision that it wants to resolve the investigation through a negotiated resolution agreement during the investigation. And 
a company could come to us and say, we are ready to not contest or admit to any wrongdoing, and we would like to have discussions with the office with OII about any settlement. Obviously, we can also approach the company with that possibility. The company would then have to inform us that it does have some information that would qualify it for a settlement, essentially that they have information about systemic integrity risks, and that could come in the form of information about public officials who may have solicited for bribes or were involved in manipulating a procurement process to favor a particular company, or about prohibited practices that the company committed, say, in another contract that was financed by the IDB that we weren't previously aware of. With that, typically generic information, because it's not that they have to fully disclose that before we go to the sanctions officer, we would then submit a package to the sanctions officer, as you described, indicating what the topic of the investigation that we were looking at, but then also that the company would qualify and we would provide descriptions of that. Once we receive authorization from the sanctions officer, we then go back to the company and sign what we call a negotiation agreement. And that establishes the parameters of the negotiation for both parties. And then we commence with discussions about the facts of the case, the information to be disclosed, the length and type of the penalty that would be agreed upon by the parties. And once we conclude that, we move forward with signing a negotiation resolution agreement. And then the sanction becomes public on our website, including the accompanying press release that reflects the project that was under investigation, the sanction, and the parameters of the cooperation and other mitigating factors that play into a reduced sanction that the company receives. Alice, if I may, I just wanted to add to what Samir said and what I said before, and I think it's very important for everyone to know that at this stage of the process, when Samir makes this submission to the sanctions officer, at no point are we looking at the merits of the case. At no point are we looking into the weight of the evidence in the case as if it was a statement of charges being submitted. The analysis and the review of the evidence submitted by OII at that point is very different. And we're just looking at the parameters of the negotiated resolution agreement to happen. Is that one of the safeguards that you've got in place, Juan? Correct. And the thing is that we, the Inter-American Development Bank, sits within Latin America and the Caribbean. And by and large, most of the countries in the region come from a civil law tradition. And having that inside of our institution is very interesting because traditionally in civil law countries, settlements is something that has not existed. It's only recently that we have actually incorporated that within our systems. Although this is not criminal law and we don't work within the settings of criminal law, but traditionally in our jurisdictions, there was no prosecutorial discretion. Everything needed to be investigated and everyone found guilty needed to be sanctioned. So for us to actually come into a settlement with someone was kind of seen as a miscarriage of justice because everyone should be submitted to the same level of scrutiny before the law. And you could not cherry pick to help certain prosecution or not. And having that in mind, when we came up with the system, we thought of a way in which we would not make settlements the mainstream thing with the sanction system. It would be just the exception. And for that, we need to find a way in which it would actually serve the purposes of the institution. As we said at the onset of the show, we are a development agency. Yes, we're called a bank. Yes, we lend money. But our role is that of development. And that's what we need to look for in everything that we do. 
And ensuring that the money goes to the intended purpose means that we actually provide development and getting that information that Samir was describing from the agent companies that are settling with us is actually very useful for making our projects better, making development better. So that's what we're getting from settlements. And we incorporated that within the system to try to, in a way, constrain the way that we use settlements for that purpose. Alex, how would you describe settlements in this context? There's a really interesting comparison here to be made, I think. A negotiated resolution agreements at the IDB resulting in conditional non-debarment is similar, very similar in many ways, to a deferred prosecution agreement in the UK. Now, I say in the UK because the UK context is different to the US context. A deferred prosecution agreement is an agreement between the prosecutor and a corporate organisation that charges will be laid but not proceeded with, provided certain conditions are met. So, for example, that the organisation complies with a set of previously negotiated terms. So prosecution against a corporate organisation only continues if the requirements are not adhered to within a given period. Moreover, in order for a deferred prosecution agreement to be finalised, so remember this is the UK context, a senior judge must agree both that the case is suitable for this type of resolution, but also that the terms proposed are appropriate. So there is the interaction between three parties in this domestic analogy, the defendant company, the prosecution and the judiciary in the form of a senior judge. So the IDB system, where settlements are not the rule, as Juan has already said, is closer to a UK DPA than to a US DPA that isn't judge-led. And that, again, I think highlights the strength of the specific settlement framework, which is very different to the settlement frameworks of other MDBs. Alice, I wanted to comment briefly on something Alex said about deferred prosecutions and conditional non-debarments. It is correct that we have the ability to issue conditional non-debarments. That's something that the sanctions officer can do as part of the case that he hears, or that's something that we can include in a settlement. So far with the settlements that we've had, we haven't put forward solely a conditional non-debarment as a result of the settlement. And that's largely because each of the settlements that we've concluded were the result of an OII investigation where we had already obtained some evidence and then approached the company on the matter. So it's not akin to a voluntary disclosure but more cooperation with an investigation. And because of that, and I think what companies should realize or outside counsel is that if that's the situation, it's likely to result in a debarment, but a significantly reduced debarment as opposed to if the case was contested in front of the sanctioned system. And that said, we could, as a possibility that we look forward to seeing, if a company were to approach OII before being notified about an investigation and were to truly voluntarily disclose prohibited practices, it could result in a conditional non-debarment versus a debarment, much like a deferred prosecution, as Alex was talking about. So I think it's really important for companies to know and to consider and to think about actually coming forward with information about prohibited practices before being notified by my office. Thanks for highlighting that point, Samir. And Juan, you also talked earlier about the safeguards you have of not reviewing the evidence when you're considering a settlement. How does that play into what happens if a settlement fails? Well, the reality is that at the stage in which I'm involved within a negotiated resolution agreement is at the very beginning. The amount of evidence or information that's provided to OII or OII has in its powers, it's very different from that that they would have at the end of the case. If a settlement for whatever circumstance fails, OII still has to meet the burden of proof 
to be able to submit a case. And therefore, they need to still go and get additional evidence and additional information to actually prove, according to a preponderance of the evidence, that the prohibited practice was actually committed. So when I mentioned before that one of the analyses I have to make is if this allegation was to be supported by evidence, it would be a prohibited practice. At that point, I'm not seeing any evidence that actually supports that. When the case is submitted to me, they actually need to prove that, yes, there was a prohibited practice, and yes, this is the evidence. So I would be looking at many more documentation, interviews, documents that would support those charges provided by OII. So the, the analysis is very different. The amount of evidence is going to be very different. And now I'm going to be looking into something that I was not looking into before, which is the actual evidence and look into whether or not that evidence actually supports that allegation by OII. So there's that distinction. Could I also ask you, Juan, what role does compliance play in the settlement process? Well, compliance is one of those possibilities of sanctions that we have within our system that has only been used recently. And I would say within the past three years, we have always had it for the past 10 years, 11 years, but we had not used it yet because we were in the process of growing the system and understanding all the different pieces of the puzzle. But Now it has become a mainstay within what we do because we understand our system not only just as imposing sanctions to exclude vendors and exclude companies from doing business with the bank, but also as an opportunity to regenerate trust in the different areas where we work and actually help companies become better. And in those areas in which we're working, in the countries where we're working, actually try to make the markets better. Think about, for instance, a small construction company in an isolated town where we work. There's only so many companies like that there. And if they have committed a prohibited practice, it may not be in everyone's interest for that company to not be able to contract with the government, but with our money. What we want to do is we want to foster an environment where everyone is going to be working within a clean system. And with that in mind, we're starting to use more compliance as a way, as a tool to try to make that change. The interesting thing is that compliance also has become now a mainstay in many countries in Latin America through legislation. Now, it's mandated in many countries that companies of certain size and in certain areas need to have compliance programs to deal with corruption. Now, the other thing I want to mention is that we don't only deal with corruption when it comes to prohibited practices. We also deal with collusion, which would be akin to antitrust. So the compliance programs would have to actually help within those two areas. The compliance programs are usually imposed as part of departments with conditional release or conditional non-departments and are being used in pretty much all the negotiated resolution agreements that Samir has been explaining, and in some decisions being issued by me or by the sanctions committee. Samir, have you anything to add to this explanation from your perspective? Yes. The one thing I would like to add that I think is important for companies to know is that proactive modifications to a company's compliance program or the introduction of a compliance program after it's realized that its employees have engaged in prohibitive practices is also something very important to the IDB. It can be a mitigating circumstance in any sanction that's issued either through a settlement or, again, in a contested hearing. So as Juan correctly mentioned, compliance can be a imposed condition as part of a sanction, but it can also be something that a company proactively does. And that 
is also seen in good light by the IDB. Turning to you, Alex, from an external perspective, how is this being dealt with by respondents? I think most of this has been covered, but I'll just say a couple of things. The days of compliance programs that simply need to tick certain boxes are gone, in my view. NDB compliance programs and compliance requirements are often seen as a gold standard in how to do these things, and the expectation is high. So beyond what I've described as that old-fashioned approach of just box ticking, compliance really requires an effective and reactive program. And we're looking here at the preventative advantages that Samir's just mentioned of having proper compliance program in place in the first place. That can't be overlooked. Obvious advantages there. And then compliance is relevant for all the work and projects funded by the IDB that go all the way through the system from preventative to also after the allegation of sanctional practices, either post-settlement or following, for example, a sanctions committee debarment or even a decision coming out of Juan's office. to think about the trends that have emerged within the sanctions framework. Samir and Juan, between the two of you, you have close to two decades of experience in your relative positions to draw on. So what have these trends been, and are they what you would have expected? With respect to OAI, I'd say there's two important trends that I've seen in the last roughly 10 years that I've been with the IDB. The first was a conscious decision by our office to really look at the types of investigations that we're allocating time to and reflecting as to whether that is best serving the institution. And so about six years ago, we took a conscious decision to be more selective in the types of cases we allocate resources to. While we still have zero tolerance approach to dealing with prohibitive practices, there are certain cases that can be better dealt with through operational measures and remedies. By taking that conscious decision, We've been able to prioritize high-impact investigations. What do I mean by high-impact? We define those as cases that encompass systemic integrity risks or result in direct harm to beneficiaries. For example, corruption, collusion cases, or material fraud in, in the execution of a contract. In the last few years, we've been able to shift from roughly a low of 55% of our investigations being high impact to just last year, a high of 85% of our investigations being high impact. So for us, we think that's a really important trend and one that we hope to continue and one that has been well received by the institution as a result of each of those investigations. It's uncovering more important or relevant systemic integrity risks to the programs. The other one I'd highlight is our cooperation with law enforcement or vice versa. Every year we are signing more and more cooperation agreements and this has really resulted in the increase as well in high impact investigations because we're able to collaborate and work with law enforcement on very difficult investigations. I think the result of that is seen in some of the settlements that we've had in the last few years and we expect to see this trend continue as we expand our network with law enforcement and prosecutors in different countries. And Juan, what are the trends that you've seen? As I was mentioning before in relation to compliance, compliance is now becoming something of a mainstream, which wasn't before. Not only because, as I said, in many Latin American countries, now there's a need to have compliance by law, 
but also because a lot of companies already have compliance programs. And as Alex was mentioning, those compliance programs can no longer be just tick the box kind of program. They actually need to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to the tearing. They're supposed to be finding. They're supposed to be red flagging. And the company should be able to take actions on this. So you need to prove that actually they have provided some results. And since my office, unlike all the other MDBs, is also in charge of looking at compliance programs, because we see this as part of the sanction. And at the end of complying with the compliance program, the company would be released from the sanction. That is something also that my office has to do. So we've been looking more and more into these compliance programs. And I think that that is going to become the norm that all companies, all sanctions will have some sort of a compliance component when possible. And that the companies that will become part of this sanctions process, when they come through normal sanctions process, they will probably have already a compliance program that we will have to review and assess as to whether or not they actually comply with best standards. So I see that as the future within the next 10 years. Alex, what are your thoughts on these trends? Similar to Juan, this linked, Juan's mentioned the new mainstream approach to compliance in Latin America that wasn't historically the case. And I think just to take it a bit further, we're seeing the cultural divides fall away when we look at a system that is international in nature, cross-border, and we are moving away from national regulators or regional regulators to the international. And it's the same for settlements as well. And it's born out of a number of factors. For example, it could be that a lot of the lawyers that represent these respondents tend to be lawyers of international experience. But there is certainly an internationalization of compliance and settlements. And that shows or highlights the trend and shows us where it's going. So if I could ask you all, what are the key takeaways that businesses or individuals listening to this podcast should be thinking about? Samir, if I could start with you. I think some of the key takeaways is understanding what the IDB is and what it isn't. And I think it's quite clear now it's an international organization with its own administrative adjudication processes. The results of these investigations can result in public sanctions. And obviously that is an important penalty that I think most companies want to avoid. So if they end up finding themselves under an investigation, it's important for them to understand the benefits of cooperation, benefits of settlement, benefits of compliance program, and knowing how to navigate Systems like ours will only empower them through these processes. And the other thing I would highlight again is the importance of coming forward with voluntary disclosures and the significant benefits that that might have for a company versus finding themselves under an investigation after the dirt has come to light. Thank you, Samir. Juan, as sanctions officer, what would you like people to take away? Two things. One, that We have a cross-department agreement among five multilateral development banks. And there is a sanction of the department of more than one year in one of our institutions. It is highly likely, almost certainly, that that company or individual is going to get the bar across the board in all the MDBs. If the company or individual's main line of business is doing work in the development area, with funds coming from one of these institutions, they should think very carefully as to how to proceed with the department process at any of these institutions, including ours. The second thing in relation to my role as sanctions officer is that my stage is a place where they actually can submit evidence and present arguments. It is 
a true two-tier system. And in this first tier, they get the opportunity to prove their case, to submit evidence, to prove that there's sufficient evidence to demonstrate that there's mitigating factors to take into account and to actually use this opportunity to actually prove their case and to try to solve the matter if it can be resolved at this stage. So ask them to take that opportunity seriously. Some companies or individuals do not. Thank you, Juan. And Alex, you've got the final word. I was going to say three things, Alex, if I may. The first one, Juan's touched on it, risks, and he gave the example of cross-debarment. Whereas traditionally, a respondent company might have done some sort of risk analysis that let's say 10%, 15% of its income comes from the IDB. This is at a time before cross-debarment existed. That risk analysis today is very different because even if only 10, 15% of your work comes from IDB-funded projects, cross-debarment and general cooperation and publications of decisions and all of that means that the risks are actually increased. Secondly, ultra-pragmatic, if I may, we haven't actually mentioned them, the sanctions procedures. They are the rules and regulations that govern the sanction system. They are published. They are on the IDB website. They are regularly updated, I think, most recently, January of last year. And lastly, for people who have a fear of acronyms, this is not an easy world to navigate. I hope we haven't subjected the listener to a horrendous barrage of acronyms. I mean, it's only when we listen to this again that we'll know. But this is a world where acronyms are very much part and parcel of it. So apologies if we've used so many acronyms, but that unfortunately is just part of the deal when talking about MDB sanctions systems. Well, unfortunately, that is all we have time for. Samir and Juan from the IDB and Alex from Outer Temple Chambers, thank you all very much for your thoughts and insights. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants and follow us on Twitter at Unspoken Giants. Do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken Giant series, where we are joined by representatives of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Global Fund, the New Development Bank, the Nordic Investment Bank, and the World Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald and our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes, and John McKendrick, QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. To hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio.